Welcome to Fully Covered, sponsored by Grant Thornton, leading providers in audit, tax and advisory services. Hi everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Fully Covered. Today I am delighted to announce that my guest is Donal Cullinan from the Central Bank of Ireland. Donal worked in the life and pensions industry for more than a decade before joining the Central Bank of Ireland in October 2003. He worked in various roles in insurance supervision and anti-money laundering and was appointed as Director of Insurance Supervision in September 2019. Donal is a member of the Central Bank Supervisory Risk, Performance and Resourcing and Policy Committees. Donal is also a member of the Central Bank's Diversity and Inclusion Working Group. Donal sits on the Board of Supervisors of the European Insurance and Occupational Pensions Authority, EOPA, and was elected to the EOPA Management Board in November 2023. So, Donal, thank you so much for coming in today. It's absolutely fantastic to have you here. I was hoping maybe that we can kick off with a little bit about your background. How long have you been in the CBI, your roles in the CBI, and just talking a little bit about your current role as director? Sure. Well, first of all, Emma, thanks a million for inviting me on. I've been a big fan of the podcast since it started, so I'm de- delighted to join such a, an august guest list that you've had. I started in the industry 30 years ago and uh, spent about 10 years working in life and pensions. Uh, and then I joined the pensions regulator 2001 before I joined the bank then in 2003. And I've been there 20 years. It's literally just over 20 years. I celebrated my 20th uh, anniversary in the bank just at the end of October. Most of the time that I've been there, I've been working in insurance, insurance supervision and roles in insurance supervision. Uh, I did take a a five-year sideways step to the anti-money laundering area. That was in 2014 and then returned in 2019 and and took the role of of Director of Insurance Supervision. Very good. And I suppose what motivates you about your role in the CBI? It's quite a simple message, really, in some ways. It's all about protecting customers. That's really what it's about. And if you you look at the Solvency 2 Directive, it's very, very clear. It says the purpose of supervision is protection of policyholders and beneficiaries. And when it comes to the insurance world, when we talk about consumers, that obviously is policyholders and beneficiaries. So the opportunity to do that every day to protect literally millions of policyholders right across Ireland, right across Europe, right around the world, uh, that's what motivates me. It's a, and it's a quite an easy thing to get yourself up out of bed in the morning to do. And how did you transition from your role in supervision and AML, AMLD yeah. to director of the directorate? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. I suppose that there's there's two things really that that are different. One is just the number of people that you're uh, in charge of, kind of leading. So generally in the bank, if you're head of a division, you're leading a, a group between forty and sixty people. When you're a director. It's a much larger group of 120. So that's a big, big part of the transition. And then I think another part of it is uh, just you're part of the collective leadership of the bank. So even though I, I carry the role director of insurance supervision, and that's chiefly what I'm responsible for, I also have collective responsibility for all of the other roles at the bank as well. So that's quite a big piece and big transition to come into. I mean, when I was appointed, it was, it was effectively Ed Sibley appointed me as director and his message, if you look back to the press release, when I was appointed, he said Donald will lead the intrusive supervision of insurance companies. So I was given the lead on that and that's very much what we have uh, focused on over the last uh, four or five years. It was a difficult period because not all that long after I was appointed, obviously we had COVID. Uh, So it was a difficult transition in in that sort of sense, but really, really pleased with what we've achieved over the last uh, four to five years. I think we've been quite effective uh, in terms of our uh, supervision of what is quite a complicated area. You know, you are talking about, uh, what, 195 insurance companies, um, 35 life, 60 reinsurance companies, 100 non-life companies. So quite complex, very internationally focused, 
brought over 100 billion in premium in 2022. 73% of that was outside of Ireland. So quite a complex area. You know, you talk to people about insurance, but insurance is a very, very different thing depending on which company you're in or which sector you're in. So quite a complicated thing to, to actually supervise, but really, really happy with what we've achieved over the last four to five years. And can you tell me a little bit about how insurance supervision is structured within the central bank? Sure. So as I said, I'm director of insurance supervision and together with colleagues right across the bank, we supervise that sector that I just spoke about. Within the insurance director itself, we have two divisions. One is domestic and actuarial supervision and the other one is international and advisory supervision. So they ha- both have horizontal supervisory functions, so domestic, non-life, for example, or cross-border uh, or reinsurance. They also have horizontal functions as well with actuarial and advisory, so they cut right across. So there's about 120 people in insurance supervision, but there's about 80 other uh, across the bank in different areas, so policy and risk, uh, analytics and inspections, obviously our uh, colleagues in, in conduct as well. Very good. You mentioned there that there's, a, I suppose, a huge number of companies to be supervised. How do you decide what level of supervision is assigned to each company? So I think it's a kind of important maybe to take a slight step back before we get to the decision point, because some of it's just dictated by legislation. So if you are a reinsurance company, for example, you're going to be subject to prudential supervision. If you are a non-life company, you're going to be subject to prudential supervision but you're also going to be subject to conduct supervision if you trade in Ireland. And quite a number of companies do, actually. And if you are a life company, you're going to be subject to prudential supervision, you're going to be subject to AML. And again, then if you trade in Ireland, you are going to be subject to conduct supervision. So before we even get into making a decision, some of that is dictated by legislation. Obviously, you'll be subject to more supervision, subject to the number of kind of mandates that uh, the bank has in relation to your particular firm. Beyond that, then, the main... Uh, system that we use to determine how we apply supervision is the probability, risk and impact system, which I think many listeners will know as the PRISM system. And we categorise firms in accordance with the risk of their failure, what their failure would represent in terms of their, that, that failure would represent the threat to our supervisory objective of protecting customers. So we have four categories. We have high, medium high, medium low, and low, and how you're supervised at the level of supervision. It's a graduated approach. So when you're low, it's essentially more or less driven by the returns you submit and whatever regular transactions you might have. Right up, if you're a high-impact firm, that will be day-to-day, almost continuous interaction uh, with, with your supervisory team. Um, generally speaking, your kind of big household names, so say your Axes, your Avivas, your Irish Lifes, your New Ireland's, your Zorics, your VHIs. Um, I'm probably leaving somebody out there. I hope they're not offended. Um, they will be subject to, they, they, the, the domestic players are generally high impact. And then firms that trade cross-border tend to be low and, and medium low firms, generally. Very good. And would those high impact companies, would they have a specific team looking at, after them? Or how does that kind of work in terms of the... Yeah, generally they would have they would have a team looking after them of, of two to three people, okay. but obviously support them from different areas around the bank, be it on conduct, be it actuarial, or whatever else. And has the prison model evolved over the last few years? Or well, it has evolved since it was originally implemented. I think the model itself, when it was um, when we were first drawing up the, um, the 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 quantification that we would use, has evolved since that's become a little bit more uh, simplified. Um, and certainly I think since Solvency 2 as well, the actual regulatory framework itself is much stronger. 
Um, so that allows a little bit more uh, scope to to follow the risk, as we would uh, as we would say. So it's certainly evolved uh, since then. But I, I think we we should always be looking at the model and see if it could be evolved further. Because as I say, things do change. The the, the industry has changed an awful lot since the implementation of Solvency Two. So, for example. It used to be when we talked about domestic firms and international firms, that was quite distinct, you know. But now, you know, there were 70 firms, that non-life firms, that wrote business in Ireland last year, also wrote international business. 50, or nine of the 15 firms that wrote life business in Ireland last year also wrote international business, cross-border business. So things have changed. So we, you need to evolve the framework in order to um, cope with that and evolve your supervision in order to cope with that. Absolutely. And we obviously have a, a thriving insurance sector here. And as you say, it's very much internationally focused as well. Can we talk a little bit about the authorization process, I suppose? Um, and you mentioned COVID and we've had Brexit. So there's been a, a lot of things in the mix over the last few years. Are you seeing a lot of companies coming to you looking for authorization or what what are those numbers like, I suppose? And could you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the numbers have been fairly steady. We generally authorize about six firms, six to nine firms, six to nine firms a year. That generally tends to be what's in the pipeline. Um, there's a good deal of interest. I mean, we, we have a specific authorization team there and their remit is very much to authorize firms. It's not to not authorize firms. They're very much there to authorize firms. So we would meet with anybody who expresses an interest uh, very early on and quite in advance before they might even submit an application because we want to make sure when they submit the application it has a very good chance of actually getting over the line. So we spend a lot of time with with, uh, applicants and and those uh, expressing uh, a desire to enter the market. You know, it's funny that things can ebb and flow a little bit. You know, we've seen different demand at different times for the likes of SPRVs, even in the last 12 months. That's been, you know, one stage it didn't look like there was any coming. Then we've got quite a few back in the pipeline again. Um, we have um, authorised one domestic life company uh, in the last 12 months. Ed is another uh, relatively high profile applicant in there as well. So um, it's 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 still quite um, quite a lot going on. And there's still quite a number of applicants coming in. I think where we see the main kind of growth, though, in the sector, and certainly what since we have since since uh, 2016, has been more um, existing license holders very much expanding what they've been doing and extending their authorizations and receiving uh, portfolios or transfers of portfolios in from other group entities. Uh, so a lot of uh, firms that would have used London as their EEA headquarters are now using uh, Dublin. So that's where we've seen the main growth. And I think the balance sheets are up in around 30 or 40% uh, since 2016. So much, much uh, bigger sector in terms of balance sheet size since then. Very good. Yeah, that's very positive mm. to hear. So it is. Um, I suppose just in terms of the authorization process, some people might say that it takes, you know, it takes a long time um, for a company to get authorised. And and I, I, you know, I understand some of the reasons behind that. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we do publish the the amounts of time it takes. We we have deadlines that that we have specified. Some of them are specified by legislation, but moreover, we've, we've set them ourselves, and we do publish a report on that. But the plan is that in twenty twenty four, we are going to publish more uh, information in relation to the length of time of the authorizations. Sometimes it it can take an amount of time, uh, although very rarely huge deals of time either and very often what happens is 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 we've sought a piece of information so that the clock stops and it can be that piece of information coming back that can take quite a long time 
Uh, but I think really the, the the key is is to is to as I said to speak to us in, in advance, um, get some good advice, and respond as best you can to any and as quickly as you can to any any queries that the authorization team might have. Very good. We mentioned COVID there. How did COVID impact, I suppose, the working arrangements in the central bank itself? You know, how, how many days are people in the office? Or yeah, I mean, it was well. I mean, how did it impact? At first, it <laughs> impacted like impacted everybody literally in on a Friday and then completely remote on the Monday. Like everybody else, we, we probably struggle with that, but we also cope with it at the same time. The model that we have moved to since that now is, is, is a 50% model. So we're required to be in the office 50% of the time and, and uh, working from home the other 50%. I think that's because we, we value people's time. We value it in the office, but we also value working from home. Uh, and so far that's proved uh, to be very, very successful. Uh, and I don't... I would imagine we will keep that for, for a good deal of time to come. Very good. Yeah, I think companies are, uh, you know, they're probably looking at their models now to understand what is that right balance. But mm. it is lovely having the flexibility, I suppose. Um, but also, I suppose it's it's the other side of the, the coin. It's important to kind of have that interaction with amongst staff. And Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the bit that you'd be concerned about is the cohesiveness, the cohesiveness of, of the messaging. And, and I think the bit that an awful lot of us worry about, I mean, this isn't by any manner it means unique to the bank. I've heard this in many, not just in financial services, but beyond, is particularly newer and younger people joining um, a firm. Do they feel that same sense of loyalty, camaraderie, as we might be perhaps had when we would have joined a firm uh, because you were in there, you were part of part of the furniture, so to speak. They don't necessarily have that in the same way. And I think that's that's a concern and I think that's something we'll have to consider. And I've certainly heard of uh, firms, you know, they, they will make staff come in, you know, for the first six months or whatever. But if they're making them come into a half-empty office, does that make an awful lot of sense either? So I still think there's a there's, there's a way to go on that as to, as to what, is, what is the right balance, particularly for those people who join at first. And I suppose from talking to companies then, is that on your radar from a central bank kind of regulation perspective? Is there is there a risk there that you guys are trying to, I suppose, mitigate? Or? No, I don't think so. It hasn't as such become a regular supervisory issue, I would say. You know, I think firms are, they're all navigating their own way. And I think it, it can be quite particular to their own circumstances too. I suppose the one piece for us that we would, we would, always need to keep an eye on and 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 this is has been an issue for as long as I've been in the bank which as I said earlier is 20 years is that decision that making nexus control to make sure that the firms are still being run from Ireland as opposed to anywhere else but to be fair that hasn't become an issue since 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 uh since covid it's it's no more of an issue now than it was it was prior to that so I wouldn't say we're looking at it in terms of a supervisory piece but Obviously, you know, operational resilience is always a concern and um, it's something that I think firms themselves need to be very, very aware of. But my talking to, to CEOs and senior managements of, of, of firms has been, it is something they are very much, it's something that occupies an awful lot of their thoughts. Mm-hmm. I know that the the CBI's, I suppose, regulatory and supervisory approach is it's fundamentally a risk-based one mm. and you mentioned the, the PRISM model. How do you assess the proportionality piece in terms of that supervisory approach, you know, do you think that the balance is right? Yeah, I, I mean, I go back a little bit to what I, what I said earlier on, on, on you have to start with the mandates and that's, you know, if you have more, if you're subject to more mandates proportionately, you'll be subject to more supervision. And then beyond that, it is about the prison system and, and, and how you're, how you're, um, you know, graded within within that, I would say largely we have. You know, because I think you know, if you see the list of entities that we have and and the ones that 
are at that higher end, the ones that are at the lower end. You would certainly see, I think it would be very obvious, the impact it could have on policyholders if any of those firms were to uh, run into difficulties and, and potentially fail. Um, so it is right that we devote our resources towards those firms that have the greatest level of impact. And I think in many instances, it's obvious that they are the firms that that do. I think it's always something you, ha- you need to keep under uh, review um, to make sure that, that you know, the proportionality is right. And obviously, it's something itself that's subject to uh, discussion under the Solvency to review at the moment as well. So I think it's... Um, as I said, always something that needs to be kept under review. But I think, by and large, if you look to that list of entities from top to bottom across those 195, I think any, I don't think anybody would have a major difficulty with where, by and large, those firms lie. And by and large, our approach, as I said, going from very little at the low end for those 140-odd firms right up to day-to-day interaction with those high impacts. Very good. So we might move on to some of the challenges in the sector. I suppose, what, in your opinion, are the most pressing challenges for the sector? And how is the sector, I suppose, equipped to manage those Mm. challenges at the moment? Yeah. So I think the sector itself, there are probably, (laughs) I mean, there's so many, you could probably talk, we could talk all morning about them, but to maybe just focus on, on kind of maybe six of them. So I think financial resilience uh, is a huge one. Obviously, the whole economic environment is enormously difficult and enormously unpredictable. And obviously we have, uh, we, we had a, a low for long interest rate environment. Now we have a very different one and I don't think we're going to be going back to a low for long. It may not be as high as it is now, but it certainly I don't think it's going to go back to where it was. And that brings its own set of challenges. Also, when you look at the markets, particularly when you see equities as high as they are and as high as they've been, you're almost looking at some of these asset classes and you think they're almost begging for a correction. But they have been for a number of years. So it's difficult to know. My fear a little bit is if when one of them goes, they may all go and there's just crisis, you know, crisis of confidence and that could be lost. So I think that the whole financial resilience and, and macroeconomic environment is, is a huge challenge. I think the availability of reinsurance is a challenge for firms as well. I mean, we certainly heard all the stories about uh, the renewal season at the beginning of this year um, and how difficult that was for firms. Obviously, as things goes on, hardening markets, you know, pricing, terms and conditions, you know, that's a real challenge, I think, for firms. Climate change, huge. Um, obviously, non-life and reinsurance companies are, are exposed to kind of the, you know, the direct effects of, of um, physical environmental disasters. And, you know, we're seeing, obviously, the increase in frequency and severity of those. But, you know, it's very much something that needs to be at the heart of health insurers and life companies as well, the way they're thinking about things too. Um, and then moving on, maybe things like cyber risk, I think is a huge one. And we've seen huge growth in that in terms of uh, the coverage that's provided by Irish companies in relation to it. But obviously an area is still a huge deal of uncertainty in relation to, in relation to cyber. Uh, operational resilience, I've already mentioned, but I think it's, there's probably some unique factors that from an Irish perspective, because we have got this very internationally focused uh, sector. But very often the firms we have here, even though they're internationally owned, they can be a relatively small part of what is a much larger group. And very often they're outsourcing back to the group. They're competing with other entities within that group. And even though, strictly speaking, they're in charge, they are the they are the client, so to speak. Um, you know, that's not necessarily, it could be an inverse relationship in terms of power. So real concerns there. And obviously then just beyond that for operational resilience, just the sheer demands, that, you know, the labour market almost being a capacity, possibly is a capacity, just trying to attract and retain staff for everybody is really, really difficult. So that's that's a concern. And then probably the last one that to focus on is customer detriment and that risk that 
customers and, and the well-being of customers isn't at the heart of what firms are trying to, the decision making, the, the decisions that they are making. Uh, and I think failure to do that could have, you know, real consequences for firms going forward. I think there's, it's much more on the supervisory agenda that that's where firms need to be. Some firms are very good at that, others less so. Uh, and we really need to see everybody uh, raising their game in that respect. There's a huge amount in there and I suppose we're going to talk about the directorate's priorities mm. for 2024 in, in a couple of minutes. But just in terms of those challenges, like what's your feeling? Are, are companies stepping up to the plate to manage those risks at the moment or, you know, is, is there a lot more to do? Because I, I know the CBI has published a lot of guidance for most of those mm. uh, challenges at, at this stage, you know, so there's, there's a lot of support out there, I suppose. And from a regulatory perspective, you know, there's fairly clear guidelines, I'd say, for most of them. But how do you think they're they're fixed in terms of meeting those? Yeah, I think generally, I mean, the, if you look at the solvency coverage that's there in place, it really has. The, the sector has remained very resilient over the past number of years. And that's despite all of the challenges that have been there, be it Brexit, be it COVID, be it the geopolitical situation we're, we're, we've faced with over the last number of years. So, I mean, that in itself says something about the robustness of the sector, the fact that it has remained remained so resilient. And we've seen some really, really um, positive behaviour. I was quite impressed, I have to say, with how the firms reacted to the interest rate environment uh, and the changes in the interest rate environment. And they did, you know, look at those asset liability mismatches and adjust them accordingly, kind of in anticipation of where the interest rates might go. Quite impressive, actually, in, in, in some instances. And I think that is very, very positive. Probably some areas where, where we still think there's good scope for development would be in the climate-related risk, I think, in particular. And some of the other areas that I've kind of spoken to there, you know, the likes of operational resilience, even reinsurance availability, you know, they're not necessarily all within the company's gift to actually uh, manage, but some of them have, you know, I think they're they're all conscious of it. If you were having these discussions with firms and they weren't aware of them, you know, things that would seem to be very obvious that they weren't aware of or weren't taking account of, you'd be concerned. We're not having that. It may be more. We don't think the responses perhaps in some instances are good enough, but at least they're having, at least they are identifying these these. Uh, risks as being the ones that are there for their businesses. Mm -hmm. And in terms of assessing the current state of play, I suppose, how does the CBI do that? Is that through thematic reviews or just, you know, apart from the day-to-day -day supervision, I suppose, what other ways does the CBI kind of get comfort around those? Yeah, well, it's, it is a combination of day-to-day yep. -day supervision and thematic, thematic reviews as well. So it's both. And obviously then, you know, the, the likes of the ORSA would provide a huge amount of information. Just a lot of the, a lot of the reviews we do just on the returns we get provide us with a tremendous amount of information. But I still think the best way of really knowing how firms are getting on is to actually have a good chat with them and, and a good discussion with them. So that is generally how how we get to the heart of the information that we need. We'd also talk, you know, to the the likes of Society for Actuaries and things like that as well. So we can get feedback in 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 multiple different ways and multiple different levels. Very good. So we might just move on now to the directorate's priorities for 2024. And I suppose when, you know, when these are published, they're, they do provide a huge amount of guidance, particularly mm. for boards, you know, and what areas to focus on for the next year. So maybe could you just talk us through those priorities uh, for 2024, please? Yeah, no problem. So I'm going to be a little bit like a broken record because there's four of these that are going to come up pretty much every year, and I don't ever really see them changing. So that's financial resilience, operational resilience, climate and conduct. So, I mean, they're always going to be in the central bank's agenda. Maybe just to go back to the financial resilience just for a moment. You know, that is part, I mean, I mean Solvency 2 is very much a financial resilience uh, piece of um, 
legislation, it's almost a requirement built around financial resilience. But I suppose the specific areas that we'll be focusing on in 2024 is definitely that lower for longer inflation rate scenarios and how that impacts on, on reserving. And also there will be a focus on sectors of business lines that have grown significantly. So cyber, for example, is one line that's grown quite significantly over the last few years. Uh, the other things that firms should be aware of is that there is going to be an open stress testing exercise next year. So that all kind of comes under that uh, general kind of, of um, heading of, of financial resilience. They'd be the specific things we'd be looking at uh, in 2024. Uh, on the operation resilience side, obviously we did publish the, the cross-industry guidance and operation resilience, uh, what, in December 2021, with kind of a two-year transition period to, for that. So it effectively, you might say, kicks in at uh, the beginning of next year. That's obviously not a cliff edge, but it would fit in from there. So that, that will be something that will be um, subject to discussion next year and part of our supervisory programme. And DORA, I think, will also form part of that conversation next year as well. But I, I would say that would be more something we're looking at in much, much more detail in 2025. On the climate change side, and we've already, uh, I think, uh, covered it, but obviously the the guidance for reinsurance undertakings uh, on climate risk uh, was issued last year. So I think the key piece we'd be looking at there is materiality assessment going into 2024 and governance, just how that materiality assessment itself is governance, but then also how it's brought through to the brought through to the rest of the business. Just on the climate change piece, actually, um, am I correct in saying that there is a, a, a team in the, the a climate change or climate risk team within the central bank? Is that correct? Well, we have a, we have a central climate change unit right. that coordinates the work right across the organisation. So it goes to financial stability, but it also goes into each of our supervisory areas itself. But it's a key area of focus for us, both from a policy perspective, because there's a lot of discussion at this at the OPA level, and also at, um, you know, from just from, from our day-to-day -day, uh, supervision. So we developed, for example, a climate heat map where we identify those firms that are subject to most, we feel, to risk from climate. So that kind of informs our supervisory judgment and our supervisory inter interaction as well. So then just to go back to the priorities, then on just on the on the conduct side, we published our retail conduct strategy uh, last year. So that's still very much being implemented and, and that'll be a key focus for us next year, as we'll review the consumer protection code. So that's ongoing at the moment and I expect that will be published at some point uh, next year. Then maybe just to touch on a couple of final ones then, maybe just in terms of the priorities. On governance, obviously we've had SEER and that will form part of discussions next year. But I think the other one that we will be focusing on is the OPA statement on the governance arrangements uh, in third country branches to perform activities for groups. So that'll be uh, a key piece, obviously, that that statement was published and we'll be following up on that. Uh, from IT, cyber and digitalization, certainly it'll be very much uh, our desire to, we've done a lot of work on that in the last number of years. We did a digitalization survey and we also did a data ethics project um, and we'll certainly be trying to grow our understanding with that. And we re recently published a consultation paper on innovation, uh, CP156. So um, it'll all be kind of very much working together with that and, and in tandem to uh, increase our kind of um, deepen our understanding of digitalization because I think that's probably a, a key risk potentially for, for uh, consumers going forward. Finally then, protection gaps, which is a huge area of focus both uh, here and at European level and internationally too. So one of the pieces that we are working on at the moment is insurers are very good at identifying the number of properties they cover in flood risk areas, 
What we're trying to do now is to assess the number of properties that are not covered. Uh, so we're doing analysis with that, which will combine the OPW flood maps, will combine air codes and also uh, flood modelling. So you see if we can we can assess the gap in what isn't covered at the moment, that's currently, and also how it might be with the impacts of climate change as well. And we will work then with stakeholders, uh, and in particular with um, with firms, um, to see if there are things that can be done to mitigate uh, flood risks and ultimately try and close that protection gap. So I suppose in terms of that then, you, you have, as the bank has identified, particularly for flood risk, a, a gap at the moment, and then you're going to work with the state key stakeholders next yeah. year to try and address that gap. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, it'll be next year, and I'd say possibly even beyond. It'll take time. I mean, it's not, it's an interesting one for supervisors because it's not a gap we can close, but it's, I think it's about providing a framework in which, you know, the, the minds that are out there in the insurance industry and the reinsurance industry could potentially come together to see, well, what are the potential solutions? Because solutions have been found. They've been found right across Europe. They've been found in North America. So we know they're there. And I suppose we can feel somewhat grateful in Ireland. Our exposure to climate isn't as great as it is in other in other jurisdictions. That doesn't mean there isn't exposure. And if you saw, you know, what happened in Cork and Kilkenny and other areas around the country, Newry, you know, earlier this year, and, you know, as I say to people, as bad and all as that was and terrible for the people that suffered as a consequence of that, that wasn't on a national level. And it's possible we could get something on a national level that could put that into the, you know, very much a relatively minor space. And I think that's what we need to be ready for. I think we've been very lucky. We haven't really had one of those big major events in probably 20 years now. Um, so we have to be ready for the next one when it comes to make sure there's, well, that hopefully something will be there to deal with that if and when it does arise. Yeah, it sounds like a very, very interesting uh, piece of work because yeah. I suppose if you watch the news the last uh, even couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's very sad to see those businesses, isn't it? And, Awful. You know, Awful, with, yeah, uh, yeah. with no cover. But um, yeah. unfortunately, it's going to, you know, the events are probably going to, you know, become more frequent and more severe. Um, so, yeah, no, that sounds like a yeah. really interesting piece of work. There is an opportunity, though, now. Mm. You know, there is an opportunity now to... To hopefully deal with it before it becomes before it gets worse, mm-hmm. possibly hopefully with maybe with the view to maybe making sure it doesn't get as bad, but even with, even if it does, that we can actually have something in place that that deals with it and you says for those businesses, mm-hmm. and even for for people who very often are are are, are vulnerable and are living in in um, areas that are prone to flooding, you know what can we do for what can we do for them? And I think there's you know certainly our interaction with with firm state has been bilateral. There's also been uh, some collective. Uh, discussion with the industry and and there's um, certainly a, a, get a, a real feeling that there's a there's a desire there on industry's part to to try and help with this. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Can we talk a little bit about DNI if that's okay? I know the bank has done a huge amount of work in this space over the last number of years. What are your thoughts on on DNI and where firms are at the moment? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting uh, area, and obviously we did publish some results uh, a few years ago showing that the uh, the insurance industry, um, certainly at senior level, was kind of in around the seventy thirty mark when it came to when it came to gender. It is interesting when you look underneath some of that data, though, as well. That actually, when you look at the nationality split, it's much wider. So I think it's about it's about fifty five percent of the directors are Irish and forty five percent. Non-Irish, and that's kind of UK, US, French, German, Italian. And when you consider that an awful lot of the business that 
Irish insurers and reinsurers right is US, German, France and Italy um, and UK obviously as well. Um, you know, it, it, it is good to see that because I think where DNI comes to the fore is about adding value. What is the real value that DNI brings? So it seems to me to be kind of, uh, you know, so obvious that if we're talking about your big domestic firms, you know, we live in a country that's 50-50. Why isn't there 50-50 on the boards and the EMTs? So I think that's that's a, that's a gimme. When perhaps we go into the cross-border space, maybe we need just need to look at a little bit with a little bit more level of sophistication in terms of is it better to have if you are an Italian unit or Italian owned firm writing business uniting business back into Italy, are you better off to have uh, an Italian person on that that understands that market? The chances are you are. So, you know, we need to think of that, I think, a little bit more nuanced. But certainly I think we've seen some improvement on the gender balance over the last number of years within the insurance industry. But still there's good good deal of work to do there. I think other things from a DNI perspective, there's a real piece of work to be done, I think, in terms of attracting younger people into the industry as well. Because I think a lot lot of us who have worked in it for a long time would say it's a great industry to work in and there's an awful lot of scope um, for to have a really kind of positive career, a very varied career, both in terms of what you do, but also potentially, I mean, you can travel the world with insurance. You really can. It's it's truly a global product. And that's possibly not something that's seen and understood. It might be seen as quite dull, uh, but it's 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 far from it. And interestingly, uh, the Society of Actuaries published a report quite recently around the intake of female students into the, into the various programmes that are there in the universities. And sadly, those have gone backwards where they did, we did have 50-50 and it seems to be somewhat related to the Project Maths course at, at leaving cert level. So I think there's potentially something to be looked at there um, and I nearly wonder should we we go back to the the old days of, of potentially getting people in directly from school that maybe there's another way of maybe getting people in and developing developing them out, out that way. And I know that the Insurance Institute has done an awful lot too to its apprenticeship programme uh, in terms of trying to get people who perhaps have straight from school or perhaps have fallen out of the, the education system at some point. I think they've been enormously successful at that. So I think there's a good deal of work to be done there as well. But then I think the other piece that is um, interesting from a, a DNI perspective is we did a, an informal survey of the head of actuarial functions last year. Sorry, it was possibly even before. No, it would have been last year. It would have been 2022. And only uh, 25% of those had reserved in an inflation rising environment. So it does beg it kind of beg the question as to where are all of the 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 knowledge of a more interest or a, an inflation rising uh, environment where are all the knowledge are reserving to that where's it gone? And perhaps we've let some of that go too quickly from the industry. So I think there has to be a question as to, as to how we need to we need to make sure we're attracting younger people but also retaining knowledge from people that perhaps have have maybe reach retirement age, perhaps aren't interested in working in a full-time role or executive role anymore. And perhaps the INET circuit doesn't suit them either. So maybe we need to think about some other way of kind of keeping that knowledge there on tap for when such such situations arise. Because it would be great to have an, um, an old, I don't mean necessarily an old head, but a head with uh, experience that, that has experienced some of these things before. So I think we need to think about things like that as well. Yeah, no, I think you've you've made some very good points. And I've definitely discussed um, particularly the gender, mm. the gap with a number of the guests on the podcast. Can we expect anything then from the central bank, you know, in terms of providing more guidance to firms on that? Or is that something that the central bank, you know, it assesses, it kind of sees what the current state of play is, but 
predominantly it might leave that to firms to kind of manage manage themselves. Like how how does the central bank kind of manage that, I suppose? Because to me, you know, having more balance is, is, is just so positive and yeah. you can see it in a board. You mm. know, you can see when there is more balance there, you've got more diverse views like that ends up in a more positive outcome for everybody. So I, I think it's a huge, huge advantage to firms to have a diverse and, you know, um, inclusive, I suppose, organisation generally and particularly at board level though, where yeah. decisions are being made. I think that balance is really important. You know, it's difficult because some firms are very open and maybe a bit more progressive than others, but then others aren't, you know, mm. um, maybe take a more old fashioned approach, I suppose. So, you know, what can the central bank do there to, to support that agenda? Well, I think the biggest thing we can do is hold up the mirror to these firms and hold up the mirror to an industry and say, this isn't good enough. And, you know, I think that there is a point where some firms, you know, there's, there's walking the walk and talking the talk, and and at some point they will have to they'll have to they'll have to walk the walk. I think progress has been made. I think there was I think it was always going to be a bit of a kind of a it will be a bit fit and start. I think there will be plateaus for for sometimes for kind of um, I don't mean obvious reasons, but you're not going to get everybody all coming through at the one time. So you have to you, you have to allow for that. But I think when when you look at the EMTs, Emma, that that are there. They're much more balanced. So kind of logically, you would expect that within a few years, the boards themselves become, will become a little bit more balanced as well. And certainly that will be our expectation. So we will continue to look at it and we'll continue to publish our results, particularly around the PCF holders. And certainly be our expectation that that's the, right, the direction it'll go. But this is a discussion at European level as well. We have quite a, quite a good number of discussions at, at EOPA level in relation to DNI 2 and particularly on the gender side, because we think it's the one that is probably the one that we can we can achieve the most most quickly and and get the most value from too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think from from my time in in the central bank, I think the bank the stats from the bank itself were actually really good in terms of um, you know the number of maybe you know women at, at a senior level in the bank. Um, uh, I presume that's still the same now. Yeah, it's, it's a few years is, since yeah. I was there, but well, if you think of the if you think of the uh, executive management team at the bank, which is which is uh, the governor, the three deputy governors, and the COO. It's uh, three women, two men, two non-Irish men as well. So our DNI is pretty good. But I would never, I think, is uh, every organisation should should be looking at the population we serve and the population of Ireland in in, in case in, in terms of what we serve and you know the demographics that are in society should also be reflected in that organisation as well so I would never consider us to have the job fully done either uh, but certainly something we strive to do. So I suppose I'd just like to thank you for your your time today it's been really interesting and it's it's great to get um, you know an understanding of what is your key areas of focus uh, moving forward um, so thanks so much for your time and uh, hopefully you'll come again next year to talk about those priorities for, for 25 and we can talk about all the progress that's been made. Brilliant, I'd be delighted. Thanks Emma. Mm-hmm.